Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Church, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 will also have the text up on the screen as well. But we are continuing our series, preaching through the book of Mark. And we're actually going to start in verse 19 this morning. And then we'll go back to to chapter 5, verse 1, and kind of work our way through the text. But Mark 5, verse 19 is where we're going to start. We're going to pray in a second, but as, as you are turning there, let me catch you up a little bit on where we have been in the book of Mark. Because you remember last week, we preached the text where Jesus calms the storm. Jesus calmed the storm. Like he, he commanded the wind and the waves to cease, and they obeyed. They obeyed. We saw Jesus demonstrate his power and authority over creation. And last week, we learned that Jesus is sovereign over the storm. Jesus is more powerful than the storm, and therefore, we can now live by faith and not by fear. And this morning now, we're going to see Jesus demonstrate his power and authority over evil. We're going to see it as he displays his great mercy on this demon-possessed man. In the next three weeks, we're really going to be seeing him demonstrate his authority and power. So last week, we saw him, remember, demonstrate his authority and power over the storm. This week, we're going to see him demonstrate his authority and power over evil. And next week, we're going to see him demonstrate his authority and power over death and disease. And these three narratives, Jesus calming the storm, Jesus casting out demons, Jesus healing disease and raising a little girl from the dead. Some commentators have called these three stories uh, in the book of Mark, they've called it the St. Jude chapter. Okay, they've called it the St. Jude chapter. You see, in Roman Catholicism, St. Jude is the patron saint of hopeless causes. Hopeless causes. And these three narratives that we are in the middle of, they seem like hopeless situations. The storm had the disciples thinking that they were about to drown. This demon-possessed man, people had tried to restrain him. They tried to help him, but they've kind of just given up on him and isolated him out away from the city Next week, we're going to see people tell a father, hey, don't even bother Jesus with this. Your daughter is already dead. All three situations, seemingly hopeless situations. However, these hopeless situations are not so hopeless when Jesus shows up. And so these next three weeks, we're going to see Jesus engage and enter into these hopeless situations. Situations. I don't know if you've ever felt like you have been in a hopeless situation. I've had times in my life where I just felt like this is a hopeless situation. Or maybe some of you have even felt like you are just a hopeless cause, like your life itself is just hopeless. And so my prayer is that this week and continuing into next week, that you would see that hopeless causes and hopeless situations are not hopeless when Jesus shows up. So look with me now at Mark 5, verse 19. Again, we're going to start in 19, then we'll go back to the beginning of the chapter. Mark 5, verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home to your friends and tell them how much you have done for the Lord. Now, wait a minute. That's not what it said. It didn't say, go home to your friends and tell them how much you have done for the Lord. No, it says, go tell them how much the Lord 
has done for you. Church, we have a God who is rich in mercy, and it is according to his great mercy and grace that he has done so much for us. But here's the problem. Here's why some of us don't go tell others how much the Lord has done for us. The problem is we forget how much he has done for us. We do. We forget. And when we forget how much he has done for us, we we start to falsely believe that he has only shown us a little bit of grace. We start to falsely believe that he has only shown us a little bit of mercy. We do this, like be, be honest with yourself. We forget how much the Lord has done for us and therefore we start to falsely believe that hey, we just needed a little bit of mercy from God. We weren't that bad, it wasn't that bad. We just needed a little bit of grace from God. And when we live like that, thinking that we only needed a little bit of mercy and a little bit of grace, hey, that's nothing to write home about. That's nothing to get excited about telling our friends and family. But church, my prayer, my prayer for us is that we would walk away this morning reminded of how much the Lord has done for us. How much the Lord has done for us. That we would be reminded of his great mercy and his great grace. So pray with me and we're going to ask that God would show that to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word this morning, and we do not take it lightly. We know that, God, your word is powerful, that it has the power to transform us, that it has the power to speak life into existence. We know that, God, you hold all things together. And so, God, I ask that I would get out of the way this morning of what you are trying to to speak to us. And Lord, I ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you would make our hearts able to receive this, that you would give us ears to hear this, that this would not just be information in our brains, God, but that this would lead to transformed hearts, that this would stir us to worship you. And so God, we ask that you would do only what you can do this morning through the proclamation of your word. And we ask it all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, this morning, let's talk about mercy and grace for a second, okay? We often use those two terms together, but they both need to be understood to really appreciate how much the Lord has done for us. And I like simple definitions. You could certainly go out and find some more in-depth, complex definitions of grace and mercy. But for my sake, let's keep it simple this morning, okay? Grace can be defined as unmerited favor, okay, or undeserved favor. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, Okay, that's grace. We didn't deserve it. For by grace you have been saved. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. God has given us blessings we don't deserve. That is grace. Now, mercy, mercy is a little different. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Mercy is God not punishing our sin, even though it justly deserved punishment. Mercy is God not handing us over to our sinful desires and addictions, even though we have turned to them instead of God. 
Now, it doesn't always feel good to talk about mercy, right? Because it reminds us that in our sin, we deserved eternal punishment. We deserved eternal separation from God. And that's a sobering thought. Now, we love to talk about grace, right? Like, we love to talk about getting what we don't deserve. And trust me, we will always preach grace here at this church. This will be a grace-centered church. We want to receive grace. We want to extend grace to others. We are all about grace. But we also have to understand his mercy. We also have to be reminded of the judgment that we have been delivered from. Because verse 19, it says, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And if we don't understand the mercy of God, if we forget about the mercy of God, we will start to forget how much the Lord has done for us. And so this morning, it's not only this text is not only highlighting the authority of Jesus over the enemy, but it is also showing us how much the Lord has done for us by reminding us of his great mercy, his great mercy. So go back to the start of Mark 5, and we'll start in verse 1, and we're going to walk through the text. We're going to see just how much the Lord has done for us. Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now let's stop there. Now remember, Jesus, we just have learned that Jesus calms an external storm, okay? So we just saw he commanded the wind and waves to cease, and they obeyed. He calmed the external storm by commanding them, and they ceased. And now, now we're going to see him calm an internal storm in this demon-possessed man. Okay, this man, he was possessed by a demon which made him unclean. He lived among the tombs. He lived among the dead bodies, which in that culture, in that setting, that made him unclean. He was isolated from community. He was out away from the city. And the demonic possession was causing him to be miserable. He was crying out. He was cutting himself. He was harming himself. People had tried to restrain him. They had been putting shackles and chains on him. But there was no one and there was no thing that had the strength to restrain him. There was no one and there was no thing that he had encountered up until this point that was strong enough. It was, to say the least, a hopeless situation for this man. Now let's talk for a second about demonic possession because the text brings it up, so we need to address it, okay? We need to understand a few things about demonic possession because we learn from this passage that it is a real thing. It is a real thing. Now, it's not always like how movies portray it or The Exorcist or anything like that, but we do learn from this text that demonic possession is a real thing. Now, listen, we need to know that Christians cannot be possessed by demons because Christians have the spirit of the living God dwelling inside of them. And listen, the Holy Spirit is not cool with being roommates with the enemy, all right? So Christians cannot be possessed by demons, all right? We also need to know that we need not be fearful of demon activity, okay, because we are going to see here in a few verses that the demons fall down before Jesus. 
and they submit to his authority. They ask him for permission. So we need not be fearful of demonic activity. We also need to know that we don't need to give the enemy too much credit for things, okay? So every time you get a flat tire on the way to church, every time you get sick, okay, or any time a family member has a mental illness, it's not always demonic activity, okay? Let's not give the enemy too much credit. But on the flip side of that, to ignore that there is an enemy, to ignore that there is a spiritual world and spiritual forces, to ignore that Satan and demons exist, is also foolish and unwise of us because the Bible clearly teaches that they do exist. People who don't have the Holy Spirit at times in history have been occasionally possessed by a demon. And yet in this passage, we're going to see Jesus flex his muscle and his authority over the enemy. And our hearts will hopefully be stirred to worship that according to God's great grace and mercy, he delivers this man from evil. And we're going to see in the same way, he delivers us from evil as well. And we've used this verse a lot in the book of Mark. It's from Colossians chapter 1. But I'm going to use it again. We've been using it as we've been talking about the kingdom of God. But I want to remind you of again, Colossians 1 verse 13 and 14. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus delivers us from evil. And what I mean by that, Jesus delivers us from evil, that what I'm saying is Jesus delivers us from the work of the enemy and, and he delivers us from the sin in our own hearts. Okay, so when I'm, I'm going to say this over and over. Jesus delivers us from evil. I'm saying Jesus delivers us from the work of the enemy and he delivers us from the sin in our own hearts. And as we watch Jesus deliver this man from evil, I want to help you see how much the Lord has done for you by showing you how he has delivered you from evil as well, how he has delivered you from Satan's sin and death. So here this man is. He's enslaved and oppressed by the enemy because he's possessed by demons. He's naked, he's wounded, he's been cutting himself, he's running around, he's out of his mind, he's isolated from community. This man had a family, this man had friends, but he's had to be isolated from them because he's out of his mind, because he's possessed by the enemy. People have likely given up on him. He was miserable. All hope was lost on him. It's a hopeless situation. Who could be strong enough? Who could be merciful enough to help this guy? I'm glad you asked. Verse 6. Let's go. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now we've talked about this in the past. It took human beings a little while to figure out who Jesus was, that he was God in the flesh. But the spiritual world knew right away who he was. We see the demons just fall down before him. 
And the account from the Gospel of Matthew, it also adds the demons say, have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. You see, the demons knew and they know that there is a time that has been appointed when Jesus will send them to their eternal judgment and destruction. The demons know who Jesus is. They know their time is coming. And look, verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. In that time, a Roman legion consisted of anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 men. That's not to say that that is exactly how many demons possessed the man, but we know that a multitude of demons possessed the man. Look at verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The demons reminded Jesus that, hey, hey, it's not the appointed time yet. Uh, they know he's going to cast them out, and so they beg him to be cast out to this herd of pigs. Now listen, this is where we need to pause and consider context and culture, okay? Because pigs in that time and pigs in that region and pigs with that people were viewed very differently than me talking about pigs in 2018 to a group of bacon-loving Hoosiers, okay? It's a little bit different. Our context and our culture are a little bit different talking about pigs, okay? And so when we read this passage, I was honestly, I was a little concerned that a riot might break out when we read about 2,000 pigs drowning in the sea. I mean, that is a lot of wet bacon that has gone to waste out in the sea. But let's try to understand this culture and context a little bit, okay? Two things we need to understand about the pigs. Back then, the people of God still had restrictions on food, okay? And pigs were considered one of the unclean animals that were not to be eaten. Now, fear not, Jesus and later on the Apostle Paul and Peter, they go on to affirm that now under the new covenant, the people of God, Christians, we can eat anything. Jesus goes on in Mark 7, we're going to read in Mark 7 verse 15, he says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So church, fear not, I come this morning with good news of great joy for all people. In Christ, you are free to eat bacon to the glory of God. Can I get an amen? All right. Now that can't be your best response this morning, or else we're going to have to deal with some bacon idolatry. So later on, I'm going to need some more response and some more amens. Okay. Now, we don't know exactly what these pigs were being raised for, but back in those times, pigs were sometimes used for worshiping false gods. They were raised to feed Roman soldiers who were oppressing God's people, or they were raised to feed other Gentile rulers who were oppressing God's people. But whatever the purpose for raising them, it wasn't pure motives. There was no 4-H or county fair. This wasn't little Jimmy's like pride and joy pig possession that got possessed and ran off into the sea, okay? Second point of what we need to understand about the pigs is that 2,000 pigs does have a certain amount of worth and value, okay? This was someone's livelihood. But get this. Jesus casting the demons from the man to the pigs 
By him doing that, he shows us that a human being is of far greater value than 2,000 pigs. Which you might think I'm being Captain Obvious by saying that. Like, of course, human beings are more valuable than animals. But listen, not everyone is there. Now, let's talk a little bit about animals. I love animals. God has certainly given us a responsibility to take care of animals, to cultivate the environment that we live in. So we are to be good stewards of the world around us. We are, to take, we are not to be cruel to animals. We are to care for them. We are to cultivate the environment that God has given us. But listen, the Bible does say that there is a difference between human beings and animals. Because you see, human beings are created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God gives us significant value and worth. Not because we are so great in and of ourselves, and not because your mom told you you're a snowflake, right? No, but because we are created in the image of an infinitely glorious and valuable God. And Jesus, because of his great mercy, delivers this man from evil. And when he does, he does not even second guess if it's worth destroying 2,000 pigs. No, Jesus understands that a human being created in the image of God is of far greater worth than a whole herd of livestock. And you might not think that's important to bring up. You might think, of course, all humans know that and think that. But you watch next time a kid falls into a, a, a gorilla enclosure, right? That happened a couple years ago. A kid fell into a gorilla enclosure. They shot the gorilla. And then there was outrage that a gorilla would be killed to save a human life. Jesus is saying, although pigs and animals are awesome, we're to care for them, take care of them, be good to them. They do not at all compare to the value and worth of a human life, an image bearer of God. And so Jesus cast the demons out of the man to the herd of pigs, and they run to the sea and are all drowned. First thing that happens when Jesus delivers this man from evil is that Jesus frees him from oppression. Jesus frees him from oppression. Jesus delivers this man from oppression by drowning his oppressors in the sea. Now, I hope that's maybe triggering some memories from the book of Exodus for you. Because in the book of Exodus, you see God also drowned the oppressors of his people in a sea. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, it's like a new exodus. He's leading a new exodus. He's calling people to turn back to God. And, he's, and Jesus is here to liberate them from their oppressors. And so in the same way that God had led his people through the Red Sea so that he could drown the oppressive Egyptians, so too Jesus sends the oppressive demons into the sea to be drowned. According to the great mercy of God, Jesus delivers this man from evil. Jesus delivers this man from oppression. Because listen, Satan and sin are oppressive. They are. Before we were free in Christ, we were slaves to sin. In the book of John in chapter 8, verse 34, we'll have it up on the screen, Jesus answered them, says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
Sin is oppressive. We were slaves to sin before we were free in Christ. Before someone has faith in Christ, before Christ regenerates their hearts with the Holy Spirit, before that occurs, a person is a slave to sin. Now, some people don't always realize that they're a slave or that they're being oppressed. It's obvious to some, okay? So to some people, uh, like let's say if they have an addiction, all right, it's obvious to them that they are a slave to whatever this substance or activity that they are going to for pleasure. It has now enslaved them, right? They've gone to it for it to serve them. It's turned on them, and now they serve the addiction, right? And so for people in addictions, they see, hey, I am oppressed. I am enslaved by this. But then even people who aren't struggling with addictions, they are also slaves to sin because they don't have the ability not to sin. Even the seemingly good things they do, people who aren't in Christ can do good moral things, but even the seemingly good things that you do are actually done in a sinful way because they are not done for the glory of God, they're done for the glory of yourself. And so whether you realized it or not, before you were in Christ, you were a slave to sin, and it is the grace of God that reveals to us that apart from Christ, we are not free, but instead we are oppressed. The things we have looked to serve us, they have actually turned on us and made us serve them. And church, I've said this before, but I want you to remember it about true freedom. True freedom does not mean being able to do anything you want to do and be anything you want to be. True freedom is being who you were created to be and doing what you were created to do. Okay, I'll say it again. True freedom does not mean being able to just do anything you want to do or be anything that you want to be. True freedom is doing what you were created to do and being who you were created to be. Romans 6, verse 6, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because of his great mercy and grace, Jesus has freed us from oppression. Look back at Mark 5. We're going to keep going through the text. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now, those who were watching the pigs are probably not too happy about this, right? This is their livestock. This is their, you know, their, their, this is their bank account, so to speak. They go tell the people in the city to come out and see this guy, this guy who was previously kind of naked and out of his mind and shrieking and cutting himself and no one could bind him. They come out, they see him with clothes on, in his right mind, sitting next to Jesus, and they were afraid. It says they were afraid. Right? You remember just like last week when the disciples, they were fearful of the storm, but they were even more afraid when they saw the storm obey Jesus. Like, who is this? They realize they are in the presence of someone with great power and authority. The people are fearful because they realize they are in the presence of the divine. 
or they're just afraid they're going to have to eat turkey bacon the next few months until they can round up some pigs. Either way, they are fearful, okay? They are fearful. And there is a reverent and appropriate fear that comes over people when they are in the presence of the divine. And so here is the man now clothed in his right mind, sitting with Jesus. According to the grace and mercy of God, Jesus has delivered this man from evil. So to summarize, first thing that happens when Jesus delivers the man from evil is that Jesus frees him from oppression. Second thing that happens when Jesus delivers this man from evil is that Jesus heals and covers his physical, mental, and emotional wounds. When Jesus, I'll say it again, when Jesus delivers this man from evil, Jesus heals and covers his physical, mental, and emotional wounds. And church, the same is true for us today. Not only does Jesus free us from the oppression of our sin, but he has now covered our sin. He has clothed us in his righteousness. And he is now in the process of healing the wounds that sin has left in our life. We all come to Jesus with wounds. We do. Because of sin, whether it be our own self-inflicted wounds or because of being sinned against by other people, we have all been physically, emotionally, or mentally wounded in some way. We've all sinned against someone. We've all had someone sin against us. We've all wounded other people, and we've all had other people wound us. And in our sin, we were also self-destructive. We wounded ourselves in our sin. This demon-possessed man, right, he was harming himself. He was cutting himself. Why? Because the enemy loves to destroy image bearers of God. John 10, verse 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I forget the verse, but there's also a verse that says, And the enemy has been a murderer since the beginning. But... But, Jesus goes on to say in John 10.10, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, listen, Jesus heals the wounds that sin has caused by offering himself to be wounded on our behalf. Jesus heals the wounds that sin has caused by offering himself to be wounded on our behalf. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Hear these words. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We are healed. You see, we do not need to fear the enemy because Jesus has authority over the enemy. We also know that he is a defeated enemy. And through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, Christ has defeated the enemy. But evil, both Satan and sin, they still do wound us. They still do cause hurt and pain in the world. We know Jesus has already obtained victory we know that the enemy's time is short. We know that his demons know their day is coming. But we still live in a time where we can be wounded by sin. 
And I recently read a story about missionaries who were serving out in a remote part of the jungle. And this story, I think it helps us understand a little bit better the time that we are in, where we have a defeated enemy, and yet we still wound one another, being sinned against and sinning against other people. And these missionaries, they were sharing how they were living out in the jungle. One day they said an enormous snake slithered right into their front door. They said the snake was like over 10 feet long, right? They were terrified by it. They ran out of the house, okay? Now this wouldn't be a good morning to sign people up for a mission trip, so we're not gonna do that this morning, all right? Uh, But they didn't know what to do. This enormous snake slithered into their house, so they ran out of their house. They didn't know what to do. That's something here in America. We're not trained to know what to do when a 10-foot snake comes into your house. I don't know what you do with that. And so they go, they find a neighbor, and this neighbor walks over with a machete, just as calm as could be, and he marches into the house, and with one swipe, he decapitates the snake, and then he just walks out like a boss and doesn't even talk to him. He just, like, leaves. And then another, another neighbor comes and, and tries to like explain to the missionaries what just happened. He said, hey, he said, hey, hey, the snake is dead. It's been defeated. It's decapitated. But it's going to take it a while to realize that it's dead. You see, a snake's neurology and blood flow are such that it can take considerable amount of time for it to stop moving even once the head has been taken off. And so for the next several hours, the neighbors encouraged the missionaries to stay out of the house And they just had to wait as the snake's body kind of thrashed about. It smashed their furniture. It broke windows. It flailed into the door. It caused havoc in the house until it finally died and ceased from moving. The missionaries had felt frustrated, a little sickened by this, but they knew that the snake's rampage wasn't going to last forever. And at some point in the waiting, they came to the realization they realize that our enemy is a lot like that snake. He's already been defeated, and yet in the meantime, he's going to do some damage. There's going to be some thrashing. But church, never forget that his head has already been taken off by snake crusher King Jesus. Jesus has delivered us from evil, and yet we are still living in the thrashing time. Satan still wounds. Sin still wounds us. We still hurt one another, and yet we don't despair because we know that this is only temporary. We know the enemy's day is coming, and we know that Jesus is healing our wounds. First thing that happens when Jesus delivers this man from evil is that Jesus frees him from oppression. Second thing that happens when Jesus delivers this man from evil is that Jesus clothes him and heals his wounds. Third thing that happens when Jesus delivers this man from evil is that Jesus restores his relationships. He brings him out from isolation and back into community. Look back at Mark 5, verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Because of the work of the enemy in this man's life, he had been isolated from family. He had been isolated from friends. And Jesus delivers him and tells him, 
to go back to his friends, to go back to his family, and for those relationships to be restored and to share with them how much the Lord has done for him. Church, sin isolates. Sin breaks up relationships. Sin broke our relationship with God and it continues to break our relationships with one another. But church, we were not created for isolation. We were created for community. We were created to know and to be known. Remember, we were created in the image of God, in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have been in eternal fellowship and community with one another. It's no wonder that being created in the image of the triune God that we are created for fellowship and community with God and with one another. But when we live in sin, we isolate ourselves from community. We isolate ourselves from God. But Jesus came to restore relationships that sin has broken. He came to restore the relationship we have with God, and he came to restore the relationship we have with one another, with the relationships we have with our family, with our friends, with our spouses. Sin wants to separate and divide us. Jesus came to restore those relationships. And you can imagine what joy came from this man returning home to his family, returning home to his friends, and the joy he had when he had the opportunity to tell them what Jesus had done for him. And church, this is the same for us as well. When we really understand what Jesus has delivered us from, what great mercy and grace we have received from him, how he has freed us from oppression, how he has healed our wounds, how he has restored our relationships, we should then be ready and willing to go tell our family and our friends how much the Lord has done for us. You were not created for isolation. You were created for community. Sin isolates. The gospel congregates. You in your sin, it isolates you from community, from God, from one another. When the gospel is proclaimed, this has been going on for 2,000 years, when the gospel is proclaimed, people congregate and develop community with one another. That is what is happening here. That is what we have been doing the past year. We have been preaching the gospel and we've been seeing God bring people that were isolated from one another together to live in community. That is the church. We live in community with one another. Salvation was accomplished for you through Christ, it brings you into community with God and it brings you into community with one another. And in closing, I would like to ask you to turn to the book of Titus. If you have your Bibles, uh, flip right in your Bibles. Uh, you'll pass First and Second Thessalonians. You'll pass First and Second Timothy. Right after that, you're gonna get to the book of Titus, okay? And we're gonna close with Titus chapter three, starting in verse three. And this morning, it is my goal 
that as we go through these narratives, these stories about Jesus, as we go through this particular story, it's my goal to, to tell you about Jesus, to teach you about Jesus, for you to marvel that Jesus is God. These stories are proclaiming that Jesus is God, right? He's the only one who's got the power and authority to calm the, the wind and the waves, to cast demons out, to raise people from the dead. We are learning through these stories that Jesus is God. We are learning that he has authority and power over the storm, over evil, over death and disease. And so it's also been my goal then to show you just how good and merciful Jesus was to this man. This man didn't deserve any of this. He didn't earn any of this. He hadn't worked his way to the top of the religious ladder where Jesus was like, yeah, I'm going to save that guy. No, it was the guy everyone else had given up hope on. So I want you to see how merciful Jesus was to this man, but I also want you to be able to walk away this morning with hearts stirred to worship our great God who has done much for you as well. Don't let this story just stay out there. Like, yes, God was merciful to this man 2,000 years ago. Yes, God was merciful to the disciples. Yes, God was merciful in the Bible. But you need to connect this to you. We need to connect this to us because, yes, this is a story about Jesus exercising his authority over the enemy. Yes, this is a story about Jesus delivering someone from the enemy. But this isn't just a story that happened once 2,000 years ago. This is a story that shows us how merciful God was, how merciful God is, and how merciful God will always be. Because we serve and worship an unchanging God. He's the same today as he was yesterday, and he's going to be the same tomorrow, and we know his mercies are new every morning. So look at Titus 3, and I think this will really help us connect this story with our lives today, to see that, yes, Jesus was merciful to this man, but he is merciful every day. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, Hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me tell you something, church. Before Jesus showed up, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were controlled and oppressed by our own sin. We were wounded by others, and we wounded ourselves. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when Jesus showed up, he delivered us from the enemy. He delivered us from Satan's sin and death. 
Our sin had enslaved us, our sin had wounded us, and our sin had isolated us, and in our sin we rightly deserved eternal punishment and separation from God, but God in his goodness, not because of our goodness, but God in his goodness, God being rich in his mercy, He came to earth and he put on flesh and he lived the perfect life of obedience we failed to live so that we might be clothed with his righteousness. He died a substitutionary death on a cross in our place, just like the pigs took the demons upon themselves and died so that this man would live, so too Christ took our sin upon himself and died so that we might live. He died a substitutionary death on a cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. He released us from the power of sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And he's now calling a people to himself. He's calling a people to repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ. And it is through faith faith in Christ, that the spirit of the living God is poured out onto us. And let me tell you something, the spirit of the living God is way more powerful than any legion of demons. That's why John can say, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And it is the spirit of God that then applies the work of Christ to our own lives. He cleanses us from our sin. He delivers us from oppression. He heals all our wounds. He restores our relationships, and he stirs our heart to worship God. Church, look how much the Lord has done for us. Look at how he has had mercy on us. Look at how he has rescued us from a hopeless situation. Now go and tell your friends and your family how much the Lord has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, you have done great things. But Lord, we forget. I forget, God. I forget how much you have done for us. God, may we walk out of here reminded of your great mercy and your great grace, of how you have delivered us, of how you have freed us from oppression, how you have healed us, how you have restored our relationships, God. May this not be something that we, we hear this hour and quickly forget the next, but God, may this stick with us and go with us, God. May we be reminded of how much you have done for us. And Lord, may that overflow onto our family and our friends and our neighbors and our city. as ones who have been delivered because of your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, help us be a blessing to those around us by sharing all that you have done with them. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.